What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. You know, we do a lot of art on the show, and not just any art, but art that intersects with movements for social justice, um, healing, um, inspiring, holding, informing, educating, igniting our communities. Uh, through our, our Resistance and Residence series, we feature a different artist every week on Lawn Disorder that are writing, dancing, singing, cooking, you name it, their way to liberation and taking us with them, helping us see right imagine visualize the world that many of us hit the streets every day committed to create our guest today really embodies what i believe artists should be and do as the conscious of our communities ashara ekundayo is a queer black feminist interdisciplinary independent curator visual maker cultural theologian arts organizer and consultant whose creative practice is rooted in joy informed pedagogies and the study and creation of black archives site responsive ceremony and artist-based strategies such as screen printing scene making installations and altar making that illuminate the specific expertise of black women of the african diaspora Her work explores healing, memory, and place. She's the founder of the philanthropic organization Artist as First Responder, which serves as a platform to support creatives working at the intersection of design, technology, and activism to heal communities and save lives. She is also the principal at AE Creative Consulting Partners, LLC, where she places artists and cultural production as essential and equitable design practices, real estate development, and movement building. You are a busy woman, Ashara. Thank you so much. For taking time oh. to talk to us on Lawn Disorder today. Good afternoon, beautiful Cat Brooks. It's so good to be here with you. It's good to have some time to to sit, really, and witness this um, art practice and uh, the practices that you offer to us in the community through media, through activism and organizing, um, through your work as a poet and an actress. Um, I'm I'm in awe of you as well. So we are just reflecting each other's light when y'all might have to excuse us a fangirl a little bit here we are <laughs> it's a fangirl situation yeah for <laughs> sure uh, sure before we get into all of the beautiful and brilliant things that you do i want to start a little bit on the personal i want to talk about little ashara and where and how you grew up what your family was like um and then segue into when did you discover the world of art? Mm. Thank you for that question. Um, people don't often ask about Little Ashara. And uh, I grew up in a big city, a big black city called Detroit, Michigan. And um, I grew up with a, a, an artist father and an organizer mother. Uh, at a time where the country was on fire. Um, folks were reeling with the, um, the reality that uh, Dr. King had been assassinated. You know, um, folks were in uprising, just in a state of uh, fire. You know, that element being uh, at just on the tips of everyone's fingers and tongues, and they called us riot babies. 
uh, those of us who were born in 67, 68 in places like Detroit, like Newark, like LA, where um, that energy was part of our, you know, coming into the world. And at the same time, Black is Beautiful fell effortlessly from folks' lips as well. Um, I grew up at a time where, you know, the creative force of Black people was, was everywhere and still is everywhere in some places. Um, I grew up listening to poetry and being exposed and taken to art galleries and the theater and, you know, uh, the symphony that was, that was part of my growing up. And, you know, in a, in particularly in a place like Detroit where so much culture is rooted in kind of the musical legacy of black people. Um, and so much of Detroit is about black culture because it was part of the, you know, trajectory of families, you know, coming up North during the great migration. So my family, my father's family is from Arkansas. Uh, my mother's family is from Kansas. And, you know, so, so much of Little Ashara was just kind of immersed in um, the grandeur, I think, of the Black Power Movement. Uh, so it, it shaped me uh, in a way and gave me a very solid root, you know, a, a deep tap root that I still pull from and drink from, you know, to this day. I want to walk through, Ashara, some of the ways that you identify that uh, I read in the, in, in the bio. Uh, what, does, what does it mean to be a cultural theologian? What, what, what is that, and, and how does that appear in, in your life? You know, I'm, I'm really working with this identity uh, that sits at that intersection of my spiritual practice and my cultural practice being intertwined, uh, being unwilling, and just now I have no desire to separate them. And so um, the way in which my curatorial practice and my making practice show up stem from me trying to heal myself. And Sometimes there's this opportunity for me to be in community, in communion, in conversation with other folks who are also in that process of tapping into their divine self and their understanding. So cultural theology is really about, um, I think, amplifying and hmm, let's just say amplifying really uh, the light that is about knowing who you are and what you came here to do uh, and utilizing cultural praxis to get that work done. Even if it's work for your own personal benefit only, which is totally okay, you know, absolutely justifiable. And, um, you know, being someone who has lived as an organizer, you know, most of my art life, outward art life, that has looked like, you know, the need to stop and take a breath, the need to have ancestor reverence, to pour water, to pour libation, to teach meditation, to offer mindfulness practice on what it is to put the mask on yourself before assisting others, as we hear that mantra, for those of us who get on airplanes from time to time. Um, 
So just so being in a space of saying, I'm, I'm aware of my divine self and I'm aware of your divine self. Here we are as artists um, and cultural workers. Let us begin to be in a place of healing and, and liberatory space together. Along that, that same uh, vein, talk about what it is to be rooted in Black feminist curatorial practice. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> Come on now. Uh, you know what? Like I said, you know what? What do we? What do we know about um, how the world and the universe continue to move forward? Into like, how do we stay on the planet? We know that that is the root. Um, that is the work and the expertise of Black women and our creative force. We know that. We know that Black women keep the universe intact, and. Uh, to be rooted in that is really to have been raised by a Black feminist, to have been raised by a mother who actually used use those words, um, and to be exposed and gifted um, additional words by poets like Alice Walker, who gave us the word womanist, um, who um, uh, prophets like Audre Lorde and <laughs> Uh, thinkers and seers like Octavia Butler. So having this Black feminist, and not only that, but Black queer, Black lesbian feminist um, root, I think, you know, at my, my kind of like primary uh, years as a, an adolescent coming up, you know, what I was being introduced to, and then as a, a freshman um, first year student in college, and I didn't, you know, go to college at all until I was 21. Um, and I went with my three-year-old son. So, you know, I come from this place of um, being someone who has been taking care of someone else since I was a teenager. You know, so all of these, these ideas around um, seeing yourself, honoring yourself, um, and knowing that you are capable and that you deserve respect um, and love and care and kindness, I think really come from being raised by a feminist for me. Now let's take all of that and carry it into a conversation about artists as first responders. Talk about giving birth, giving breath um, to, to that. What is it um, and what are your hopes? I, I, I mean, I've, I've seen you all in action um, Folks um, may remember you all being front and center during the trial of the man who murdered Neil Wilson, but I'd love you to talk mm -hmm. about um, mm -hmm. how the praxis you've just been talking about informed the formation of artists as first responders and what you all are about. So, you know, I'm, I'm an artist, <laughs> artist curator who named my, my practice artist as first responder. And first responder is a term that I, I don't remember hearing before the 9-11 uh, tragedy in New York City. Uh, I don't remember hearing anyone use that term, but it stuck, you know, for me. And as I've witnessed, you know, being raised, you know, around with creative folks, with folks who call ourselves, call themselves artists, folks who call themselves musicians, call themselves writers, poets, what I saw is that we always showed up first. You know, <laughs> there was a crisis going on in the community you know, we, we call someone who was going to like create a movement 
And I mean by that a choreographer, a dancer, you know, someone who is going to write a poem and read a poem and speak for us and speak for humanity, someone who is going to sing a song or write a chant and that that was what we were going to be in refrain of as we walk the streets, storm the streets, um, prayed at the corners. And it seemed reasonable <laughs> to, um, to call that out, you know, as not only, you know, even before uh, the COVID-19 pandemic unfolded on the planet, you know, we continue to have the need, unfortunately, to stay in these streets and to organize. Um, and then when we look at how that gets manipulated in terms of how folks are financially surviving, you know, as these creative folks who are bringing this message uh, to the people, to the community, who are like preparing these meals, people who are um, creating these posters and these flyers. I mean, all of these aspects of design um, belong inside of all aspects of liberation and liberatory movement. So naming the work that I was doing as a curator, it just, <laughs> it couldn't be anything else but artists as first responder as we are watching the artists continue to show up in catastrophe, but also we show up first in the celebration. You know, ain't no, ain't no party to the musician get there. Ain't no party to the DJ get there. Ain't no, I mean, there just ain't no party till the artist shows up. And we know that and we respect that. So what, what we're looking to do, continue to do at Artists as First Responders as an organization is a, a kindness, anti-racist, philanthropic platform that uh, reifies and supports Black, Indigenous, artists of color, um, women in film, trans, uh, LGBTQ plus creative people who are showing up on the front line of culture and creativity. And sometimes we need to be healed too. We have to take that time to heal us. So we have to be practitioners for ourselves first. And Ashara, I'd like you to talk about actually some of that healing practice that you are doing uh, with Black artists, Black queer artists, Black elder artists. Um, I get some of your emails. Um, I, I have intention of making some of these events. I, I did make mm -hmm. one, uh, oh, which was life-changing for me, you know, to be in a room full of Black women really releasing the trauma and the pain and the uh, ancestral trauma and pain um, through a curated spiritual practice. Um, talk about some of the specifics of that work and, and, you know, tie in some of what we were talking about before we started mm -hmm. recording about the utilization of art to transmute mm -hmm. that pain into joy. You know, one of the things that happened over the course of mid-2021 and 2022 is that I found myself sitting in spaces with Black women who are in an active state of grief and trauma and rage. And it, it just happened. These are, these are my friends, my colleagues, and my comrades. You know, we're just talking. Someone's mama had just died, and uh, someone's baby had just been um, arrested and incarcerated. <laughs> I mean, something that was dealing with either state-sanctioned terror in uh, the police state or dealing with their own personal 
well-being, emotional or physical well-being was going on. And these are these are all like some very public people, public um, performers and creatives and educators. And um, often we find ourselves, particularly if you're also running an organization, you find that it's a very lonely existence. And I know, I know you can, I know you and I can have a long talk about, you know, what that means, the loneliness of being the leader and being the artist and people having this thought that they know you. Um, and that they know what you're going through because they see your timeline on your on your social media, and so they figure you must be doing okay. Um, because we we don't we don't really realize that all of the conversation that's happening on social media is scripted and curated. We curate we curate the story, and some people get up and they you know vent and they you know whatever they still made a choice to curate that. So what I was seeing is that. In particular, these groups of Black women had nobody to talk to, and we rarely talk to each other. We don't have any time to talk to each other. We're too busy doing everything to take care of everybody else. And I said, you know, I want to, I want to invite you to come over, you know, um, to my space. Or at the time, I was doing an artist residency at a place called the Space Program in San Francisco, in a dog patch neighborhood. And uh, I was working with screen print and ink and indigo and the plant itself and the color blue and the element of water and invited um, over the course of a couple of days about 17 Black women to come and um, kind of be in this prayerful space around um, the welcoming of the water, the welcoming of the tears, um, the color blue the impact of the color blue on our chakra, on our throat chakra, you know, to just literally pull the thread across um, not only art discipline, but around spiritual practices, around mindfulness practices, and to actually make something together. So this was, I didn't plan to do that as part of my artist residency as being um, there making and learning how to screen print. It's something that unfolded as I was speaking and just, you know, sitting having tea with my sister friends. And it's like, well, let's, you know, come over. Let's, 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 let's be on this blue. Let's be with this water. Let's, let's create. Um, I mean, in a nutshell, we had an indigo dying ceremony uh, and a song ceremony and a wailing ceremony that was also connected to um, dying something blue and then creating and then dying something for another sister friend who was mourning. So we created shawl, mourning shawls for ourselves, and then you brought something for another, another woman to give to them, whether they were in the circle or not. But you made something for someone else, you know, with the intention of like understanding and welcoming the water, welcoming the tears. It's like you don't have to push this away. And it was very much connected to something that I, I noticed, and that you will probably continue to see is the first time someone starts talking and they start feeling an emotion that looks like or feels like sorrow or sadness, the first thing they do is apologize. We don't apologize for laughing in public. We don't apologize for being angry in public. We apologize for mourning and weeping in public. And so this conversation with the water and with the blue is about, I welcome your tears. You can cry right here, cry right into my hand. Let me wrap you with this shawl. 
you know, so there's this poetry about being able to take care of each other and to welcome the water because we know that this is this planet and all the things on this planet need that element in order to live, in order to survive, including us, right? So if I can't mourn in public without having or feeling like or being told by some kind of societal norm that that's, that I have to apologize for that, then we have, we have to look at that. We have to look at that as a people, you know? And so you see what happened during shelter in place, right? Is that so many more people who need that kind of like public emoting, I mean, like went over the edge. And so the whole kind of like need for mental health services escalated to a, a height that we can't even match now. There aren't enough therapists to like meet the need that is real now. Because folks lost their ability to like be in public and talk with their folk and sit with their folks and cry and grieve and be in mourning. So that's just one of the one of the ways in which um, artists as first responder work. You know, this it's, it's loosely called, you know, Black Women in Mourning and Joy Art Collective is that we are actually making um, and transmuting our grief and also exploring and expanding our joy through art practices. And so some of the time that looks like indigo and water. Some of the time it looks like moving grief through our lungs, through our bodies by glass blowing and the element of fire and burning it up and being consumed. Mm. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We are in conversation with Ashara Ekundayo, a queer Black feminist, interdisciplinary, independent curator, visual maker, cultural theologian, art organizer, um, and founder of Artists um, as First Responder. Ashara, I, I, for folks who never engaged in these types of practices, I wonder if you could just walk through what something like a wailing ceremony looks like, feels like, sounds like. <laughs> it sounds it sounds like the wind. Um, I, I really was brought to this practice of wailing ceremony from the radical <laughs> revolutionary uh, artwork of Ellen Sebastian Chang and Amara Tabor Smith through House Full of Black Women um, and their uh, episodes over the last seven years rooted in Oakland and the impact that that work has had on me uh, at the, uh, from 2017 to 2019, I had a brick and mortar art gallery uh, in the uptown art district. And one of the exhibitions was curated by uh, Amara and Ellen and the collective. And part of that, um, part of the closing <laughs> of the exhibition uh, invited invited black women to come and wail and to like be truly inside of the um, the element of not only not element the the reality of rage the reality of rage and um, anger and sadness and despair um, inside of this art gallery and to physically rip the walls down. <laughs> I was not prepared for what that was going to look like or feel like. So some, you know, sometimes it just looks like a group of people coming to be in a space of memory. But that time it looked like a gnashing 
uh, of teeth, um, a lying down on the floor, a rolling, uh, a rocking, um, a lot of laughter, a lot of deep breathing, a lot of singing. How do you walk somebody through? Just the spirit came down, you know? Um, and that's that's what it means to be in a space of holding, uh, I don't want to say theology, but holding, um, holding the circle for the opportunity for us to get open uh, is made. The, the gift of holding, creating, making, and holding space for each other to get open. And it's really, honestly, the same situation that you get on the dance floor sometime when the DJ has read the room and they have created an opportunity through uh, these sonic offerings, these songs, these beats, these rhythms for people to become ecstatic and free. And like, oh, we just call it getting open, right? I'm a house head. I was like, you know, <laughs> old school house head. So this idea of like letting loose, being struck, as we say, uh, being enraptured, getting, you know, getting the Holy Ghost, all of that happens in mourning ceremonies and wailing ceremonies. It also happens on the dance floor. Again, the priest is the artist. The who is leading is always the artist. And, um, you know, over the years, work that we've done, you know, out out not only on the streets but in the park you know <laughs> in west oakland at little bobby hutton park and in east oakland at liberation park for us to have you know women in mourning uh collective that you know you've been part of cad as well as um sister you know in zinga ayodeli um i mean just so many different kinds of healers mm -hmm. yeah the black women wailing collective so again, who, who's leading that? Who's initiating that? Who's holding that space? Choreographers, poets, act, you know, uh, playwrights. You see what I'm saying? Who's, yeah, it's not the politicians who are doing that. It's not the doctors who are doing that. It's not, it's, not, it's the artists who are doing that. I want to tug on that thread a little bit more. I'm, I'm currently examining, so in the same way that the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense understood uh, that if you're worried about your light bill or your health or food in your belly, right, you, you could not be distracted or bothered with the business of fighting for liberation, right, because you were all consumed uh, by the business of survival, um, which mm -hmm. thus gave birth to the survival programs. Um, I, I believe that trauma operates the same way, right, for Black folks, that if we really sat inside of everything that has been done to us, like the, the real brutality of it, right, because we gloss over it when we talk about chattel slavery, right? We gloss over it when we talk about um, the largest underwater, underwater graveyard on the globe. Um, we, those words fall from our mouths and we keep it pushing with whatever phrase is coming afterwards or whatever point it is we're trying to get to, um, if we really sat in it, right, what the black codes look like in practice, the chain gangs in practice, if people actually really sat with what happens to black elders inside of solitary confinement in modern day American concentration camps, we couldn't function. 
And so my theory, right, like literally that we spend all of this energy, right, holding that into boxes so we can do, take our kids to school, cook dinner, go to work, um, and not end up screaming on a street corner, though some of us do end up screaming on street corners. And so when I say I want to tug at that thread a little bit more, Shara, I want to talk about the consequences, particularly for Black people and Black women, of not addressing, transmuting that trauma. I mean, you talked about the doctors aren't doing it. I mean, you look at the health conditions, right? The 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 rates of all of the horrible things and where Black women sit. Um, the politicians aren't doing it. If you look at who is the most dramatically impacted by, you know, mm-hmm. housing That's policies, right. incarceration policies, criminalization of sex work policies, right? It's us. It's Black women. And so I, I just would love to hear you respond to that, which I just put out there inside of, um, mm-hmm. you know, this container that we were creating together. Something that we know about having to car- compartmentalize our emotion is that it removes us from our body often. And so you find yourself uh, disembodied, you know, um, disembodied from the reality of what's going on. And those are, you know, coping mechanisms that we learn when we're very young, how to get through the day uh, and and try to feel as free as possible. One of the things that I'm I'm really committed to in my own family is wanting to create opportunities and experiences and spaces for my three grandchildren so that they continue to feel like the three free, brilliant Black girls they are right now. So they feel like Black girls right now. I want to I wanna help create a safety space for them to continue to feel free because at a certain point, you start having to fight even harder against the forces coming at you that tell you that you are not free and that you don't deserve to be free. Having such a deep desire for our children to know freedom um, requires that we teach and model for them the ways in which we need to stay in our body and the ways in which we need to honor all of the emotions and not apologize for any of them, particularly when we are mourning, when we are, and and mourning for um, any reason, you know, mourning because of a loss, mourning because we're angry, mourning because we're sad, mourning because sometimes that emotion just rolls over you. Um, you, there isn't really anything you can do about it. As you know, those of us who have lost someone dear to us, our mother, or our partner, that grief comes as water. It comes, it comes as a roll upon us. And the way in which the body holds all of those memories is the same way that the water holds all the memories. And that... Um, the receipts that are kept, uh, the information that is stored in our bodies means that there have to be ways in which we reclaim our bodies. And sometimes it's piece by piece. 
Um, <laughs> and sometimes we need someone else to give us permission, but sometimes it's piece by piece because we've been taught to compartmentalize, to, you know, dismember, to dis, you know, connect from the information that the body is giving us because the trauma and the rage is so heavy that sometimes we learn it uh, a part of the body at a time. We talk about our heart, but what do we actually do to like visualize and offer healing and kindness to ourselves and to our heart, literally to the heart muscle itself or to our hands, or maybe it's to our feet, maybe it's to our, you know, our eyes. But, you know, as an example uh, of a way to start on our own individual body um, freedom journey is to offer kindness and to love to some part of your body. And the hope and the desire, of course, is that you're able to like spread that out to your entire physical self so that the mind and the body that are always connected can be in harmony together. I'm thinking about the massaging of hands and people who get our nails done, um, the care that we take of our cuticle, something that is about you loving up on yourself, something that is about um, understanding this body temple in a way in which only you can intimately understand it. No one else can give that to you and no one else can give it to you, give it to you or understand it is what I'm saying. And, um, you know, as we think about these ways in which our art practice, uh, our, our <laughs> beyond an identity, but our art, our creative divine self, as we think about those art practices, you know, what does that mean to be in a space of joy, desire, pleasure, understanding, and kindness to yourself when you perhaps are having to fight all kinds of other messages coming at you uh, from the outside? How do you find a space of your own quiet, a space of your own heart, mind? a space of your own peace, your own freedom. So I'm very interested in, in how to do that uh, in ways and, and creating spaces for us as individuals, but as creative healers um, to be able to uh, witness each other in that, you know, witness our own, uh, our own practice of it because it is a practice like any other practice. It's a journey. We're getting to it. We're getting at it. We're moving around it. And um, there isn't any end point. You know, there's only the process of it. And it's literally, literally a matter of life and death for us, for Black women. I mean, for all people. I just think specifically about Black women um, to identify and have space for these practices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Ashara, you had, uh, we don't have a ton of time left. Um, so I'm like, I'm like, what do I want, where do I want to go? But you, you did mention, um, 
you know, that you did have a studio in Oakland for a couple of years. And, and while you had the gallery, excuse me, not studio, while you had that gallery, you and I had some conversations about the impact of gentrification on the ability of Black artists to live, create, and sustain in Oakland. And I'd like you to just spend some time talking about what what are the pitfalls? Like what what are what are politicians? Bring them up again. Mm-hmm. Um, not seeing in terms of the very real consequences for the whole community, not just Black folks, when we do not prioritize the sustainment of artists, and particularly artists of color, and specifically Black women artists. Mm-hmm. I mean, the most obvious consequence, of course, is that we we leave. The consequence is that, you know, these these towns and cities, communities, neighborhoods, they lose they lose these vital pieces, you know, of the of the ecosystem. You know, they lose black people. They lose black women, black men, black siblings, (laughs) black families. Um, One of the things that, you know, when you're looking at uh, space and real estate development and displacement and gentrification, of course, is that there there's a cycle and there's a system and there's a strategy to making a place hip, to making a place um, worthy and beautiful. And that requires, you know, just kind of like the people. That requires the peeps. Um, the peeps make it hip, make it beautiful, because we're going, we're going to do that. And if you don't have that, and if your goal is to kind of like be inside of this white supremacist capitalistic society that says, I really just came to extract the brilliance and the juice. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I just came to get the yams, but I really don't want to support the, the, <laughs> I don't want to support the person who like sowed those seeds and weeded that, you know, that crop and, and then brought that whole situation, you know, into harvest time. I mean, the consequence is that, you won't have that. You'll have this other, I don't want to say, uh, I want to use the word benign, but I also want to use the word impotent, <laughs> you know, along with it in terms of who's there in the community and what that means for, um, again, young people coming up and what do they see? Because you do what you see. You do what you see. If you, if you, can't, if you can't see it, you really, you can't see it somewhere. You can't actually manifest it because that's that's just how we are, you know. And I want to say that there are there are examples in the Bay Area um, of organizations and folks who do see it, who do understand the importance and the impact uh, of creative art practice and cultural workers and artists and healers in that way. And you know, you see it um, at the Black Cultural Zone in East Oakland at Liberation Park. Uh, I think that there is going to be some reinvigorated energy in West Oakland um, because folks been like, you know, living and breathing and creating and rocking West Oakland since forever, forever, ever. And I think that there's some new space opportunities now, um, including the people's house, you know, that, that, (laughs) that's what I, I, I heard, I heard on the, on the streets. (laughs) I heard on the streets. That there was a people's house getting ready to, you know, open its doors, you know, in the black bottoms of West Oakland. So yes, I know yes. that I know that I know that the healers um, are going to gather. I know that we're going to convene up in there. I know there's going to be not only some um, wailing going on up there, but there's going to be some like blissed out, deep belly laughter going on in there. 
as well. And it's all the breath. You see what I'm saying? All of that is about breathing. All of that is about circular breathing, even. <laughs> it's like yep. wailing and yep. laughing both require the ability to circularly b- breathe. You know what I mean? So you're like inhaling and exhaling and making sound at the same time. And, you know, you hear it. You, for those of for those of you who are like listening, like, what are you talking about? Circular breathing. Listen to Dizzy Gillespie. Listen to John Coltrane. Listen to people who are using their breath. And that the, the, the note is continuous and varied and a myriad of things. And it's because they are not taking a breath and breathing in and out one at a time. The energy is moving the way nature moves in a cyclical manner as the circle, as the spiral. That's what's going on, right? So um, yeah, yeah. All, is not lo- all is not lost. <laughs> no, no it's not. It is not. All is not lost. You know, we will continue to, to love uh, each other and to to hold space for each other, to offer each other a, a cool drink of water for I die, as Dr. Maya Angelou uh, said. Like, what, what, what do we have here? What did Toni Morrison teach us? It's like, do not be distracted. Do not be distracted. Okay. What did Fanny, Fanny Lou Hamer teach us? What did Ella Baker teach us? You know. So I'm gonna, you know, I'm going to trust that those lessons that the Black Panther Party for Survival and beyond um, will continue to be in in practice and in motion. Um, and that those artists, <laughs> those artists, those poets, uh, those musicians who were, who were part of and continue to be part of the legacy of the Black Panther Party will continue to be uh, part of the work and the inspiration at, at Artist as First Responder and, and my curatorial practice in particular. That, my dear, is a beautiful note to end on. Y'all are listening to Law and Disorder. We've been in conversation with the phenom known as Ashara Ekundayo, <laughs> queer, black, feminist, interdisciplinary, independent curator, visual maker, cultural theologian, arts organizer, and consultant whose creative practice is rooted in joy-informed pedagogies in the study and creation of black archives, site-responsive ceremony, and artist-based strategies such as screen printing, design making, installation, Alter making that illuminate the specific expertise of Black women of the African diaspora. Her work explores healing, memory, and place, and she is the founder of the philanthropic organization Artist as First Responder, which serves as a platform to support creatives working at the intersection of design, technology, and activism to heal communities and save lives. She is also the principal at AE Creative Consulting Partners, LLC, where she places artists and cultural production as essential and equitable design practices, real estate development, and movement building. Ashara, beloved, thank you so much for joining us in this amazing conversation. Well, thank you so much, Kat. I love you so much. I'm looking forward to seeing us in our spaces of studio and creation. Yes. Yes. Very soon. Love you as well. Love you. Carry on. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fortnite Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.